Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. I lead Faith Christian Center in Austell, Georgia. Thanks for tuning in today. I believe today's message will encourage you, inspire you, help you live a life that makes Jesus famous in every area of your life. And as a result of this message, I believe something good is going to happen in your life as you listen and as you apply it. So listen up. Here's today's message. Amen. I take eyes to see. I take ears to hear. I forgive everybody of everything. I receive supernatural debt cancellation. The word of God that I'm about to receive will enable me and empower me to make Jesus famous in my everyday life. You may be seated. Open your Bible with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. If you're newer here at Faith, we put all my notes on the YouVersion Bible app, so you can follow along with me in my notes. Go to the YouVersion Bible app where it says more. Go to the events section, and you'll see our notes for today. Also, we put all of our messages online for free, so you don't have to buy them at the Faith Kiosk or at a bookstore somewhere. You get all of our messages for free. We put them on YouTube. We put them on our website. We put them on our podcast. We put them on Spotify. And a few weeks ago, we began broadcasting every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on KBTV Global, taking our faith experience everywhere we go. Amen? So Joel chapter 2, we're in our All in All series. And the Lord has been talking to us about his plans for us this year. During our faith experience on Wednesday, September 29th, a word of prophecy came forth that said, to sum up the ending of it, when he turned the corner, you're going to run into the wonders of God. That's going to cause you to go, wow. That's going to cause you to go, whoa. That's going to cause you to be amazed by the outpouring of the power of your God. One of the things the Lord said through Dr. Jerry Savelle is that 2019 will be a year of marvels wonders, and extraordinary manifestations of the greatness of your God. We know this is a year of abundant harvest that will cause us to all be in awe with what our God will do. One of the things we covered in the first week of this year, we talked about getting ourselves in position through faith and faithfulness to receive what God has for us. We looked on that first Sunday how God does wonders. That's just who he is. He didn't stop doing wonders in the Old Testament. He did wonders in the New Testament. He does wonders to this day because that's who he is. He does things that will cause you to wonder and cause people to stand in awe. Last week, we talked about how God has heard you. We talked about how to have confidence when you pray that God has heard you. And some of the things you'll see happen in your life this year, some of the harvest you'll receive is a result of prayers of years gone by. So Joel chapter 2. We'll start at verse 15. We look at the context of the book of Joel. The economy of the nation has been devastated because of their sin. They turned from God. They sinned for over a long period of time. And economic devastation has come in. So notice what God is saying through the prophet. Starting in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, call the congregation, call the elders, call the babies, call everybody together, all those who are about to get married, call them to come out. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, this is what they're supposed to be praying, spare your people, Lord, and give not your heritage to the reproach or to shame, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore, the heathen will say among your people, where is their God? So God tells them through the prophet, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of what you've been doing, and you need to pray. So if he's telling them to repent and pray, that means I'm going to hear you no matter what you've been doing. I'm going to hear you no matter what situation you've been in. Remember we talked about Jonah last week, how he was a disobedient, rebellious, racist prophet, and how God heard him from the belly of the well. And if God can hear Jonah from the belly of the well, he can hear you no matter what belly of the situation you're in. So he tells them to pray, and notice God's response. Then the Lord will be jealous or zealous for his land, and he will pity his people. This word pity means to have compassion on. Webster's 18.28 says about this word that this word pity usually includes compassion accompanied with some act of charity or benevolence. So not only is God going to have compassion on it's going to move him to action. We see this in Jesus in the New Testament, the gospel, how he was moved with compassion. And based on his compassion, he did something. And you see in verse 19, yea, the Lord will answer. What is he doing? He's answering their prayers. And saying to his people, behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I'll no more make you ashamed among the heathen or among the nations. So we read over corn, wine, and oil and think, well, what's the big deal? They're going to have corn, wine, and oil. 
Well, Deuteronomy 7.13 calls the corn, wine, and the oil the fruit of their land. These three items represent a significant portion of their agricultural economy. Their increased production of corn, wine, and oil was evidence of the blessing of the Lord on their land and economy. Joel chapter 1 reveals that corn, wine, and oil of the land was devastated as a result of judgment. But God says, because you repented and prayed, I'm going to cause it to turn. And not only your land won't be devastated anymore, but you're going to be satisfied. You're going to be fulfilled. I'm going to remove your shame. You will not be ashamed. So you get to verse 21. It says, fear not. Don't be afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Say, my God will do great things. This word great implies that God will do things above the norm, extraordinary things, wonderful things. You get to verse 23. It says, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. What is going to be the result of the former and the latter rain coming down? And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. You see, he's restoring their national economy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We'll come back to Joel chapter 2 in a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 11. We'll look at verse 13. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, what I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain. Why? That you may gather in your corn and your wine and your oil. Go back to Joel chapter 2. So part of the former and the latter rain coming down has economic benefits. And God promised that to them if they followed him. So we see in Joel chapter 2, the promise is, you pray and return, I'm giving it all back to you. Now, the former and the latter rain, the former rain is the rain that comes in the springtime or in the time where they're sowing seed. But there's another rain that comes at harvest time. If you've been with us a couple years, you've been a couple years, we talked about it's raining, I receive the rain. But there's a rain that comes when it's time to sow seed. But there's another rain that comes when it's time to harvest. I submit to you, just because we said a couple years ago it's raining, the rain didn't stop. That there's another rain falling on us now that's going to enable us to harvest. I remember when I first preached that message a couple years ago that it's raining. And then after we finished preaching, I remember I was going to a restaurant and heading to a family wedding. It rained all day. Poured. And so yesterday, as I was thinking about the message, I'm looking out my window and it is pouring where I am. It was first light, and then it was just a downpour. And I began to think about James 1, how God's habit of send good, perfect, upgrading gifts like a downpour. And then I thought, well, this is just a sign about what's coming on us as a church and the sign of abundant harvest. So now the form of the latter rain has fallen. They've turned. They've repented. They've prayed. But it doesn't stop there. Joel 2, verse 25, he says, I will restore. Say restore. To you, the years, not days, not weeks, not a few bad months, years. That the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palmworm, my great army which I sent among you. Remember, they turned from God, judgment came, and the judgment is a form of bugs. That's it. Judgment, I don't want, because I don't like bugs in the first place. But could you imagine a judgment of bugs? And what do these bugs do? They ate the economy. But God said, I'm going to restore to you everything they ate. Now, they ate it because you were hard-headed. They ate it because you did what you weren't supposed to do for a long period of time. But because you turned, I'm going to restore, say restore, it all to you. And so the thing is, when I looked at the word restore yesterday, I never really looked up that word in Hebrew. So what is that word in the Hebrew? Because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And it is the root word for shalom. The word restore here in Hebrew is the root word for shalom. Every word in Hebrew comes from a certain root word. And so the root word goes through the name no matter what it springs out to different words in the Hebrew language. It always carries the meaning of its root. And so this root word for shalom is I will restore. So what was God promising? 
they had great economic losses because of their sin. Yet in his goodness, he said he would make them whole. He would make them complete. In this year of abundant harvest, some of the harvest you will receive is restoration of what was taken from you as a result of your sin, the misdeeds of others, or different situations that have happened in life. Some of the abundant harvest you will receive this year is restoration of what was taken from you. When you look at the word shalom, it indicates the peace that comes from being whole with nothing missing or nothing broken. The promise of God's restoration is a promise to bring wholeness and completion until there is nothing missing or nothing broken. I want to say that again. The promise of God's restoration is a promise to bring wholeness and completion until there is nothing missing or nothing broken. If you imagine your life as a pie and there's pieces of the pie missing, you could have a good life, you can have an okay life, you have a great life. But if there are pieces missing, God is not done. He brings wholeness and completion till there's nothing missing and nothing broken. One of the redemptive names in Scripture is Jehovah Shalom, which means he is the God of peace. He is the God who brings completion, wholeness, and restoration until you have nothing missing and nothing broken. As we proved before that our God is a God who does wonders, understand he's also the God who brings wholeness, completion, and restoration. That's just who he is. That's just what he does. But if that was enough, he keeps going here in Joel chapter 2. You get to verse 26, and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you. This restoration, this form of the light of rain is going to come in such a way that it's going to cause people to wonder. It's going to cause people to stand in awe at what God does in their life. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward. Actually, before we get to that verse, notice this emphasis, and my people shall never be the same. Because you get to verse 27, and you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel, that I'm the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Some of you are ashamed because of what you went through. Some of you may be ashamed of what people did to you. Some of you may be ashamed of things that you have done, but where restoration is concerned, where wholeness is concerned, where completion is concerned, when God is done, you won't even be ashamed anymore. That some people try to shame you for standing for God in 2019. Some people try to shame you for doing the right thing in 2019. Well, God says when it's all said and done, you won't be ashamed that you did the right thing. You won't be even ashamed of what you did wrong. See, the thing is, your shame doesn't belong to you. It's like, well, pastor, should I be ashamed if I sin? No. Why? Jesus bore your shame. If Jesus took it, you ain't supposed to have it. So you don't have a right anymore to feel guilty, Christian. Why? Jesus bore your guilt. He bore your iniquity. He bore your punishment. God doesn't want you walking around, well, I'm so guilty. I'm such an unworthy sinner, saved by grace. That's an oxymoron. Can't say I'm unworthy because Jesus gave the blood for you. That means you're worthy. You're either an old sinner or you're saved by grace. Pick one. Can't be both. God wants to take you to a place where you're never ashamed. See, you know that phrase, before you're ashamed, God will give you double? One of the connections to that verse is how when people would owe debt and the debt collector would come, that they would have the list of their debt, all of their, what they owed, and they would nail it to the door. But sometimes a benefactor would come by and see the debt and be willing to pay it. And so what they do, for your shame you shall have doubled, they doubled it by closing it over and nailing it again. Christian, God came along and saw your debt. Jesus saw all your sins. He saw everything that you owed covered it over, and gave you double. See, when the Holy Ghost moves, he's not making people feel bad about themselves. He may convict you about something, but it's not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's to make you change your course and keep moving. See, even when the Holy Ghost moves through the office of the prophet or prophecy and word of knowledge and word of wisdom, he doesn't call out people's issues. He doesn't call out people's problems. If he does, it's because it's the last warning, because if they didn't listen to everything else, it's the last-ditch effort before you blow up your entire life. But the regular mode of operations of the Holy Ghost is not to expose your sin and shame to the public. It is to help you deal with it 
Because the blood of Jesus already dealt with it. See, this is how great the work of the cross is. Christian, where you're concerned for God's perspective, sin is a non-issue. It's like, what do you mean? So I can go sin? No, you're not supposed to go sin. But where God is concerned, Jesus already dealt with the results of your sin. So that doesn't mean when you mess up, oh, I need to run from God because God's mad at me. No, he's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. So when you mess up, when you sin, you can run to God and say, God, I blew it. This is what I did wrong. This is not you informing him. This is you confessing it. Forgive me. Clean me up and help me not to do it again. You have access because he loves you. Because he made you righteous. Just because you sinned, it didn't stop you from being righteous. Before you were saved, you may have done good things, but it didn't make you righteous. Now that after you're saved, do you think one sin is going to make you stop being righteous? No. If you're a believer, you're the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus has been applied. You may say, well, I don't deserve restoration. Christianity is not about what you deserve. It's not about what you did. It's about what Jesus did and what he deserves that he has chosen to share with you. And my people shall never be ashamed, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And upon, also upon the servants, upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and the terrible the day of the Lord shall come. God will do wonders. Say, my God will do wonders. My God brings restoration. This is just who he is. He is the God who brings completion, wholeness, and restoration until you have nothing missing and nothing broken. Romans 15:33 in the Passion Translation says it this way, and now may the God who gives us his peace and wholeness be with you all. He gives you peace. He gives you wholeness. Go to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, I'll share a few more scriptures with you just so that you understand without a shadow of a doubt that God is a God who brings restoration. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. This is not just an Old Testament reference because Jesus said in John 10 that we are the sheep of his pasture. So this is the Old Testament promise as well as the New Testament promise. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not lack. So as your shepherd, God is always leading to a place of no lack. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He, say it, restores my soul. I said, my soul? Yeah, your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. So sometimes in life, we just focus on getting through and going through. When we get to the other side, like, I made it, thank you, Jesus. But we made it, but we got some baggage. We made it, but we got some issues. You may like now want to admit, admit it. You made it, but now there's some issues in your mind. There's some issues in your emotions. But God has promised no matter what you go through, I will restore your soul. One of the definitions for restore here is I will return it back to its original state. I will turn it back to before. You ever went through anything. But not just that. I will return back to his original intended state before Adam ever sinned. So you may have gone through something, but God says, I'm going to restore your mind. You may have gone through stuff. God says, I will restore your emotions. You may have gone through something. I will restore your will because that's just who I am. I am the one who brings wholeness and completion and restoration to you have nothing missing, nothing broken. It's not just going through stuff and making it to the other side. It's that when you go through, your soul is still whole. Go to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. He will restore your soul. That's who he is. He's the God who brings completion, wholeness, and restoration to you. have nothing missing, nothing broken, and the peace that comes from being whole. So 2 Kings chapter 8. It's an interesting story. Because Gehazi, who was a former assistant pastor to Elijah was going to see the king one day. But before he did, Elisha, 
came to this wood woman who already experienced a number of miracles from God and said, hey, there's a famine coming on the land. God sent me to tell you ahead of time. His instruction for you is to leave, go wherever you want to go. He'll take care of you, but it's time for you to go so you don't experience what's coming to this nation. So she obeyed the word of the Lord. See, God will tell you before there's an economic downturn so that you're prepared to prosper even when things go south. And so she left. She went away. But seven years later, she comes back. And she's coming back to get her land back. Because while she was gone, the government took her property. They said, well, she's gone, so we might as well take it. And so she came to the king and said, king, restore me. Say, restore what belongs to me. And so Elisha just, Gehazi, Elisha's former assistant pastor, just happened to be there to talk to the king. Because the king said, I want to know all these great things you said Elisha did. Now, it's interesting that Gehazi was standing before the king. Because the last time we left Gehazi in 2 Kings, he was a leper. And lepers can't stand in the presence of the king. So wait a minute. If a leper can't be in the presence of the king, what happened? So when I study this out and see some of the Jewish scholars, you see a, chap- a couple chapters before that, that we talked about this recently, that this land was under siege by the enemy. And because of the siege, there was famine, there was lack. But the man of God stood up and says, by this t- time tomorrow, there will be plenty and it will be cheap. We know some of the advisors didn't believe, but the word of God came to pass. And so at twilight, three lepers start walking towards the camp of the enemy. They said, well, we're starving in the city. But if we go back there, we know we're going to die. We go to the army camp. Maybe they'll have mercy on us. Maybe they'll feed us. If not, they'll kill us. Either way, looks like we're going to die. Might as well go to the tent. So as these three lepers walk towards the army, God causes the enemy to hear something. See, God can make people hear stuff. They thought an army was coming after them. So they took off running, leaving everything behind. So the three lepers get to the tents. They find all the money, all their stuff, and food. Remember, they haven't had a good meal in a long time. So they are partying. They are chowing down. They're enjoying all their fried chicken, all their burritos. They're adding all the extra hot sauce to it. They're having a great time. And then in between bites, well, you know what? This is not right. You know, that whole city is starving. Maybe we should go tell them what God just did. So they go and bring the news, and of course, the whole city is freed. Some Jewish scholars believe that those three lepers were Gehazi and two of his sons. That when they turned to go do the right thing, the leprosy left them. So now Gehazi can stand in the court of the king to talk about his former career with Elisha. And as he's talking about it, he says, yep, and you know, there was this one time when God used Elisha to raise this boy from the dead. And this is what happened with the mother, and he's telling the whole story. He wait, king, wait, that's the woman. That's her. See, notice it was a setup. The king just happened to want to know about Elisha on that day. And God had set up the circumstance for the woman to show up to receive restoration because God has restoration on his mind. See, it reminds me of the story about Oprah. I remember Tim Story told the story one time when she was just an anchor woman, that she was about to be in this big movie. They saw one her in that role. She didn't know it yet, but the producers and the writers of the movie, they saw her on the news one day. And so well, this is the part she's supposed to play. She's born to play this role. And for months, they talked about her. They talked about how she was great for this role. So she's just going through her normal everyday life, not realizing that Hollywood's having conversations about her to set her up for this future she's about to walk in. See, some of you don't realize heaven's been having some conversations about you. That God has been setting things up for you. So that when you step into the situation and things happen just like that, you're like, whoa, what did that happen? And you stand in awe. Now you begin to wonder and you understand once again, your God does wonders. So this woman comes before the king, restore unto me what belonged to me. And the king said, give back to this woman. Everything that was hers, restore all that was hers, and, you know, it could be enough. Give it everything back. That's a good place to shout and thank God for. But there's still an and. All the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land even to now. So even though it was a family, apparently her land kept producing. And the government kept collecting everything those hers and keeping track of it. But the king says, give her back everything that was hers and pay her back for everything that was produced while she was gone. 
See, when you look at this root word for shalom, when it comes to God will restore, you're not whole until you get back everything you lost. And so in God's mind, this woman wouldn't be whole until she got all of her land back plus all of the interest and everything that worked while she was gone. God has restoration on his mind. Because I'm here to declare to you that restoration is not coming. Restoration is here. I'm going to say, well, one day soon, restoration is coming. No, restoration is here today. Psalm 51, 12, David says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And David wrote this song after he's been convicted by Nathan the prophet because of the horrible sins he did concerning Bathsheba and Uriah and everything in that situation. And he's repented before God and his God, give me back the joy of your salvation. Because some of you think you've lost your joy because of what you did, what you did wrong, and you should live depressed, you should live sad, that there's no way you can get the joy back you had when you first got saved because of what you did since you've been saved. That's not biblical. Because if it was biblical, David couldn't pray this prayer. But he prayed this prayer. God gave me back the joy of your salvation. I don't care what you did, how long you've been away from God. God can restore your joy today like it was when you were first born again, and even better than that, because that's who he is. Go to Mark chapter 5, verse 34. God brings wholeness, completion, and restoration until you have nothing missing, nothing broken, and the peace that comes from being whole. Mark chapter 5 is a very familiar story to us here, especially as we teach on faith. And there's a woman with the issue of blood. She heard about Jesus. She heard that Jesus anointed, that he's the Messiah. She understood from Malachi that when the Messiah appeared, he would have healing in his wings or in healing in the border of his garment. She understood that that's where the healing was because he was the Messiah. He was the anointed one sent by God. So she said within herself continuously and on a consistent basis, if I can touch the hem of his garment, if I can touch the border of his garment, I will be made whole. Say whole. And so she pushed her way out. She's been in this condition for 12 years. Got outside of her house, found where Jesus was, pushed away through the crowd at great risk to her life. Got behind Jesus and grabbed the border of his garment, and she was healed. Say healed. And so she noticed she was healed, so she slips back in the crowd because he wasn't supposed to be there. But Jesus has realized that power in the King James virtue, which is dunamis, miraculous force, went out of him turned around and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, what do you mean who touched you? You're in a crowd. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. But there's something different about the touch of faith. So Jesus kept asking until the woman said, hey, it was me. And it says he told her the entire story. But notice what Jesus said to her in chapter 5, verse 34. And he said unto her, daughter, your faith has made you what? Whole. Not just healed. Whole. Now, you have to understand, this woman has been in this condition for 12 years. She's been sick for 12 years. It says that she spent everything she had on doctors but got worse. So she has medical bills. She's lost all of her money because of this sickness. And this sickness causes you to be excluded from society. So how many relationships of hers have suffered because of this disease? It wasn't her fault that she got sick. It wasn't her fault she had all these medical bills. It wasn't her fault for the situation she was in. But notice what Jesus said to her, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Go in wholeness. Go in tranquility. Go in prosperity and be whole of your plague. So what is Jesus saying here? Receive 12 years worth of restoration because of what you went through. Everything you lost spending on the doctors. Everything you lost where your relationships were concerned. Everything you went through for 12 years, let it be restored unto you until you are Whole. She grabbed hold onto wholeness by her faith. Go to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. Your God is the God of peace who brings wholeness, completion, and restoration until you have nothing missing, nothing broken, and the peace that comes from being whole. So Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. Men, don't despise a thief if he steals a satisfied soul when he's hungry. So don't look down on the person and despise them if he stole something because he was hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore. Say restore. restore. 
sevenfold, and he shall give all the substance of his house. Now, translation says he'll restore sevenfold, even as he give everything that's in his house. So notice this. Jesus told us in John 10 that the enemy is a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. See, instead of looking at everything that happens in your life as some natural circumstance, find the thief. Because if he be found, you got seven times that you're promised to get back. See, you know, in court situations today, some people sue for different reasons. And you see there's an ad in the line and this amount for additional pain and suffering. Some of it's exaggerated. Some of it's not. But in the mind of God, where you're concerned, God has marked down everything you went through. All the pain. All the suffering. All the drama. Everything the enemy stole, not just so he can say, oh, look what they went through. But he's ready for you to release your faith today so you can get seven times his back of everything you went through. See, you're not whole until you get back what you lost. You're not whole until you get paid back for what you went through. Remember, it's not just about going through. And we are supposed to go through. Psalm 23 also says, although we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we walk through, not build a resort. So we're not always supposed to be going through. Some people, oh, I'm going through, but that's what you said for the last five years in a row. Go through, get out on the other side. But if while your process of going through, you've lost something, you've encountered some type of harm, God doesn't consider you whole until you get back what you lost. And I said, well, I've gotten over it, Jesus. Jesus is not just telling you to get over it. Yes, you should get over it. But you're not there until you receive complete restoration. Because he is the God who brings wholeness, completion, and restoration. So you have nothing missing, nothing broken, but the peace that comes with being whole. So go to Genesis 37. This is who he is. This is how he operates. This is what he does. This is what he wants to do for you. Restoration is not coming. It's here now. So Genesis 37, familiar story of Joseph. He is 17 years old. Now, we've talked about all this before. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God called them. God blessed them. But, man, they had some family issues. They had some family drama. And a lot of it was caused by the decisions and the choices they made. And so one of the issues that led to this family drama, was one of the many issues, is that Jacob made it very clear and known that Joseph is my favorite child. He had 13 kids. But he made it clear, Joseph is my favorite. He treated him better than everybody else. So the rest of his brothers, the older brothers, hated him for it. But also, in addition to that, Jacob used Joseph to report to him what his brothers did wrong. It's like he's really stacking the odds against Joseph where his brothers are concerned. And so he would send them, go watch your brothers, bring me a report. And he brought back the bad report. His brothers hated him even more. Joseph is 17, and one night he has a dream from God. Remember, in Genesis, they don't have the word of God yet. They don't have the written word they can stand on. God communicates one of the ways is through dreams. And in this dream, the imagery says that one day all his brothers will bow down before him. So he does what any teenager would do. He goes and tells everybody. Puts it on Facebook, tweets it, puts it on Snapchat, telling everybody. And his brothers, like, you think we're going to bow to you? So they hate him even more since they can't even say anything good to him. Then he has another dream. And in this dream, he sees the stars and the moon and the sun bowing down to him. This time he tells it again and tells his dad about it. His dad rebukes him. You think we're all going to bow to you? But it says Jacob never forgot it, but his brothers hated him even more. So God already gave Joseph the word. One day, they're all going to bow. And so Jacob sends Joseph on a spying mission again. Your brother's supposed to go in the city, see if they're doing what they're supposed to do. The brothers weren't doing what they're supposed to do. They had moved to another area. And so Joseph goes find them. And as he's walking from a distance, his brothers see him. They said, let's just kill him. You think you have some family drama. They said, let's just kill him. And let's see what comes about his dreams then. If he's dead, we can't bow if he's dead. This is what they're saying. What are they coming against? Not just Joseph, they're coming against his dreams. Thereby, they're coming against the word of God. Have you ever had somebody in your life who just persecuted you because of the words you were standing on? Have you had anyone ever go after you just because you believe God will do this in your life? And they say, well, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen for you. This is what Joseph is going through. 
And so they're planning to kill him as soon as he gets close enough. And Reuben, the oldest, says, hey, don't kill him. Just put him in this pit for a little while. Because it says Reuben planned to get him out of the pit and take him safely back to his father. So they say, okay, we won't kill him. We'll throw him in the pit. Reuben goes off to do whatever he had to do. Joseph in this pit probably yelling, God, it's not fun anymore. Get me out. Get me out. While Reuben's gone, Judah and the other guys said, hey, why should we kill him? Why not make money off of him instead? Let's sell him in slavery and not kill him because, you know, he is our brother after all. Man. So here comes this band of Ishmaelites. And they sell Joseph into slavery. And notice Joseph goes from being favorite son of a prosperous family to being a slave in less than a day. Imagine the emotional toll he is going through. And so the brothers, you know, Reuben comes back and says, what did you do? They say, oh, we sold him. It's done. They're gone. So they have to come up with something to make Jacob think something else. So they take Joseph's special multicolored coat, stab a lot of holes through it, put animal blood on it. And take it back to Jacob. They don't tell Jacob what happened. They just said, Jacob, isn't this the son? Of, isn't this the coat of your son? And Jacob says, wild animals must have gotten to him and tore him to pieces. But this lets you know Jacob has moved away from faith. Because instead of inquiring of the Lord, he's a, he assumes. Jacob, although he was blessed, he is the seed of Abraham. With Abraham, Abraham was blessed beyond measure. Isaac increases in blessing. Jacob moves away from faith, and he's not inquiring of the Lord like his father or grandfather would. And we see that whole household have moved away from faith. They believe in God, but they don't live like it. And so he assumes Joseph must be dead, and he weeps and weeps and refuses to be comforted. Joseph is on the way down to Egypt. He is bought by Potiphar. He goes from being favorite son to betrayed by his brothers, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, and bought He's a teenager in his early 20s by now, but it says God was with him. And it says God made him a prosperous man and a successful man, even though he was in a situation everybody would say was horrible. God blessed him to such a point that he rose to prominence in Potiphar's house that Joseph was in charge. You read by the context that whatever Joseph wanted, he got. It says Potiphar didn't keep really anything from him. And it says Potiphar didn't know what was going on in his whole estate. All he knew was the food in front of him. Joseph is in charge. He thinks probably feeling good about himself. Man, it was horrible what happened to me, but hey, it looks like things have turned. And then the scripture says in the King James that he was goodly favored. In translation, he was ripped and looked good. And so Mrs. Potiphar, walking by one day, oh, so that's how they do it among the Hebrews. <laughs> and she makes a decision, I want him. And so every single day, she's slipping into the DMs. <laughs> every single day, being super suggestive, probably sending selfies she shouldn't send. Every single day, doing what she could to get Joseph to sleep. Says, Every day, she went after Joseph and said, sleep with me. It wasn't any pretense. It wasn't dropping any hints. He was very bold. Says, this is what I want. And, you know, hormones aren't different now than they were then. Joseph is a teenager or in his early 20s. Mrs. Potiphar ain't ugly. But Joseph replies, how can I sin against my God and against Potiphar? He's not kept anything from me but you. How could I sin against them? But she doesn't relent every single day. But Joseph makes a decision, I'm going to be righteous. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, do, I'm going to stand on the principles God gave me. So one day, Mrs. Potiphar has set up the ultimate trap. She gets everybody out the house. Joseph comes in, doing his regular duties. Eh, it's kind of quiet in here today. Mrs. Potiphar grabs his clothes. Sleep with me. And Joseph takes off running, leaves his garment in her hand. And she's like, I've been embarrassed the last time. So she calls all the people back in the house and said, Joseph, try to take advantage of me. Joseph, try to rape me. And so she stays by the bed holding the garment until Potiphar comes home and tells this lie about Joseph. Potiphar is furious, throws Joseph into the political prison. Joseph is labeled a sex offender. 
and in the political prison. He did what was right and was punished for. Has anyone ever suffered before because you did the right thing? I'm sure while Joseph's in prison, he says, man, I should have just got laid if it was not going to end me up in prison. <laughs> you know those thoughts were coming to him. But while he was in prison, while he's locked up, it says God gave him favor. And now he's in charge of the prison, and he does whatever he wants to do. He's in charge. And so while he's in charge, while he's handling his responsibilities, Two political officials of Pharaoh come in, and they got there because they did something Pharaoh didn't like. And they both have a dream, and they're talking about their dreams. And across the time, Joseph interprets their dreams. The interpretation is one will live and be restored back to their place of prominence in Pharaoh's cabinet. And the other one's going to die. And he says, hey, here's all I ask. Don't forget about me when you get out. So everything Joseph says comes to pass. And Joseph is forgotten about. And Joseph stays in prison for two years. But then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. He didn't know what it meant. So he called all of his advisors, all of his people, all of his wise men, and they couldn't understand it either. And then that political official was in jail, was like, oh, Pharaoh, my bad. There's this dude in prison. He's actually innocent. He shouldn't be there. I forgot to tell you about him before. My bad. But he can interpret dreams. I had a dream. The other guy had a dream. Everything he said came to pass. I was like, dude, what are you waiting for? Go get him. Joseph runs out. He changes his garment, shaves, comes before the king. And the Pharaoh says, I've been told you can interpret dreams. He said, it's not enemy, but God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So Joseph hears the dream and interprets it, tells what it means. He says, there's going to be seven years of plenty that's going to come. Seven years of great abundant harvest is coming. And after that, there's going to be seven years of such famine, it's going to wipe away everything the seven years of abundant harvest brought. Here's what we should do. Ha- appoint somebody who is wise and discreet to take 20% of everything that comes in the seven years of abundant harvest and save it up so that when the famine comes, they can feed people. So as he's giving this wisdom and interpreting, Pharaoh and all his servants go, this dude good. And Pharaoh goes, can we find anybody else who has the spirit of God? How does Pharaoh even know he had, someone's got the spirit of God? But it says, Pharaoh says, is there anyone who's as wise and discreet of you? You're in charge of my house. So Pharaoh says, so when this family comes, I ain't going to hurt because you're in charge. But now I'm also putting you in charge of all of Egypt. The only person who has more power than you is me. But in this land, nobody can lift their foot or raise their hand unless you say so. Now put them in the chariot. Drive him around the city and tell everyone, bow down to Joseph. Whoo. Man. And then Pharaoh says, hey, I know someone. I can hook you up. Joseph gets a wife out of the deal too. <laughs> it says Joseph is 30 years old when this all comes to pass. Now, this is great, but he's had an interesting 13 years. Because over the 13 years, he's been betrayed, he's been lied on, he's been sold, he's been bought, he's been mistreated, he's been forgotten about. But when he was 17, God spoke to him through a dream. And Psalm 105 verse 19 says, until the time that his word came, speaking of Joseph, the word of the Lord tried him. Means it refined him, it purified him, it purged his character. How many of you have ever gone through something in life and it seems the exact opposite of what God told you would happen? The exact opposite of what you heard in your heart? The exact opposite of a prophecy that came your way? It was like the exact opposite. And from time to time, what God said comes back to you and it annoys you. You don't want to say out loud, God, you just annoy me right now, but you're like. (laughs) But that happened to Joseph. The word kept coming back to him. But Joseph didn't reject it because every time that word kept coming to him, it refined him. It purified him. It tried him. It purged his character. So when the time came for him to step up and enter in the place of his rulership, he was ready. 
So we see this process of restoration he's in. But go to Psalm 41, verse 51. Because you think, oh, yeah, I'm sure Joseph's gotten past a lot of stuff. He's in charge over an empire. He's the prime minister of an empire. He can do what he wants to do. God has blessed him. Yes, he has. But notice, remember, Joseph served the God of peace who brings wholeness, completion, and restoration until there's nothing missing, nothing broken, and he have the peace that comes from being whole. Genesis 41, verse 51, and Joseph called the name, he's having kids now, the name of his firstborn, Manasseh. For God, said he, has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So he has his first kid and names him Manasseh. He says, God has made me forget about all the mess I went through. God has made me forget all the pain of my life and all the betrayal in my dad's house. So notice the process of this restoration. He didn't just get past it. Now his past can't hold him back anymore. Now his past can't hurt him. I forgot about it. Apparently he remembers, but the pain, the limitation, the shame, the embarrassments, the feelings of betrayal, those things that would nag at him for years, God has removed it from me. Then he has a second baby, calls his name Ephraim, says, For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. In a place that should have been my downfall, in a place that should have ended me, God has called me to be productive, prosperous, and fruitful. Notice the restoration that has taken place for Joseph, not just in natural circumstances around him, but within his soul. Because God will restore your soul. And Joseph is in a process of having his soul restored, where his mind is restored, his will is restored, his emotions are restored. He's moved past what has happened, and now his past can't hold him any longer. So he's ruling 70 years in prosperity and abundant harvest. And then the famine comes. And in two years, it's a horrible situation. The famine is not just in Egypt. It spreads to the land of Canaan where his family was. They run out of everything. They're not living by faith in the blessing. So Jacob says, hey, I heard there's grain and corn in Egypt. Go down there and buy some. So they go, and Joseph's in charge of selling it. That's one of his responsibilities. So one day he's probably waking up, having a good morning, enjoying, enjoying his Egyptian coffee, having a great day. And then his brothers show up on his doorstep. They don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. But he recognizes them. Now, here's the process to test how far he is in the restoration. He could have said it once, kill him. But he doesn't. We see through the process of time, Joseph gets to a place and says, hey, I'm going to take care of you and your wives and your kids. You're going to not lack anything in this famine. I got you. Notice what he said in chapter 45, verse 3, when he revealed himself to his brother, because his brothers didn't know that was him. Because I'm Joseph. Is my father really alive? And his brother could not answer him because they were troubled at his presence. Wouldn't you be? You thought Joseph was dead, now he's king? And he's standing in front of you? And he said, hey, get closer, come here, I pray you. And they came near and said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, don't be grieved, don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Notice what he said in verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a poster for you a posterity in the earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So it's not you that sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Notice what Joseph did, how far he got in the process of restoration. He renamed his pain. He renamed his pain. God didn't cause his brothers to be evil and to hate him and sell him. But Joseph looked through all the bad that happened to him. And he's restored to such a point as, hey, you meant it for evil. But God has turned it for me. God sent me. Instead of saying, you sold me, I stopped talking about how you sold me years ago. Now I say, God sent me. 
So although I went through some drama and some mess over 13 years, I stopped talking about those 13 years and said, yeah, what is the summer that happened in 13 years, Joseph? God sent me. He is restoring a soul to such a place he can rename his pain. You get to Genesis 50, 20 after Jacob dies. They're thinking, okay, now Joseph's really going to come after us. All this has been an act. He says, I'm not here to judge you. But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is today, to save much people alive. That's a restored man. That is a whole man. Not just in natural circumstances, but internally. Because he served the God of peace, who brings wholeness, completion, and restoration to there's nothing missing and nothing broken. And you have the peace that comes from being whole. Joseph has peace. He's whole. He's renamed his pain. Let's wrap it up here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. The story of David. He's been anointed to be king already. But he's still working out in the fields with the sheep. This lets you know that you can be anointed for something, but it's not time for you to take your step into that place yet. So he was anointed to be king. His dad sends him on Aaron. Go check on your brothers. See how they're doing. The brothers are fighting a war. So he goes to bring them some stuff to them and to the general. And while he's talking with them, seeing how his brothers are doing, doing what he's supposed to do, Goliath, the nine-foot champion of Gath, comes out and begins to provoke Israel. He's been doing this for weeks now. He's been doing it longer than a month. Every day coming out, someone fight me. Whoever beats me, you're a champion. We'll all serve you. But if I beat you, you all serve us. And he's provoking them every single day. And Goliath comes out to do his daily taunt. And David hears him and says, who is this guy? And the rest of the army says, well, the king says, whoever takes down the giant, he'll make him rich. That sounds good. He'll make his whole family tax-free. Rich and tax-free? Okay, keep talking. And then one of his daughters, the princesses, will marry him. David's like, I've been with those sheep way too long. I become a prince. I'm rich. And I'm tax-free. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who would dare to fight the armies of the living God? So David is motivated by the reward in front of him. And he said uncircumcised because it meant this giant, although he's big, although he's bad, he has no covenant. I have a covenant. So notice how David said he could take him down by his covenant, which means anyone in Israel could have taken down that giant too. Because they all had the same covenant. But they'd all been believing like David. So David, they take David to Saul, and Saul says, dude, you're just a teenager. How are you going to take down this giant? And David begins to recount his testimony. There was a bear. There was a lion. But God delivered me to their hands. This big boy will be the same. See, David had this understanding that he was supposed to take down a giant because of what God had done through him before. See, all of them could have taken down giants because they had a covenant. When you study out the Old Testament, giants weren't just in the days of David. You study out the end of Deuteronomy, Moses killed a giant. Joshua and his army killed giants. But it wasn't just them. You look at other people, the seed of Abraham, other of Abraham's kids and of his lineage. When they took their land, they took down giants. So it lets you know it's expected of the seed of Abraham to take down giants. That if you're the seed of Abraham, you're supposed to take on giants. Well, I'm glad Galatians tells us if it were in Christ, we are Abraham's seed. So you are born again to take on and take down giants. So David had this mentality that this giant is going down. So he just goes by the river and picks up five smooth stones. Why? It's rumored that Goliath has four brothers. So David said, we can make this a family affair. All y'all can go down today. And so Goliath sees him, begins to mock him, says, you coming at me with rocks and sticks? And he begins to cuss him out and curse him by his gods. And David said, this day I'm cutting your head off and feeding your body to the birds. Goliath is enraged and takes off at him. This is a nine-foot-tall dude. If a nine-foot-tall dude is running at you, most of you might pause for a second, move out the way. But you know what David did? He says he ran at his giant. And he put the stone and he began to sling it. 
and he slings a shot right in between the eyes of the giant. And it sinks into his head, and Goliath falls down. You know, the whole armies, both armies are gasping. <gasps> but Goliath is not dead yet. He's close to death. But he's not dead yet. But it said that here, you see in 1 Samuel 17, that David had no sword. So he went and stood on the body of Goliath and unsheathed the sword. He took the sword of Goliath. Now, we all know this is Goliath's sword, right? Now, that's your question. What was the sword meant to do? Kill David. Kill the enemy, which are the people of God. So there were times when the best Philistine weapon designers were designing a sword for the express purpose of killing God's people, for the express purpose of oppressing God's people, for the express purpose of harming God's people. A sword had been formed. Goliath was going to use that sword to harm God's people. But when Goliath went down, David took the weapon that was meant to hurt him. David took the weapon that was meant to harm him. David took the weapon that was meant to kill him, picked it up, and cut off the giant's head. Lifted up the head and said, I got him. And all Israel took on the Philistines and had a great victory that day. But it says that David took all the armor from the Philistine and put it in his tent. A few chapters go by. Saul begins to go crazy. Wants to kill David. So David's running for his life. And he goes by this priest and says, hey, can you help me and my crew out? He says, well, I got some bread from God's house. And I also have the sword of Goliath of whom you slew. And David said, give it here because there's no other sword like it ever created. So David takes the sword that was meant to kill him. And what happened next? You go to the next chapter after that. It says that he goes to the cave of Adullam, and 400 men and his family go down there. Now, these 400 men weren't champions. It says they were everybody who was in debt, everybody who was distressed, people who had run away from their life. And so they went down to David, and he became a captain over him. But what did David have in his hand? The sword of his enemy. And after these 400 men came, you see, David makes more and more progress towards fulfilling his destiny. David didn't fulfill his destiny until he had learned to handle the weapon of his enemy. David didn't fulfill his destiny until he learned to handle what the enemy meant to kill him with. See, some people say, like, oh, yes, I've been through stuff. And it says, well, I'm going to tell everybody about it. Whee! Look at my testimony, everybody. That's not handling it correctly. You're supposed to tell everybody everything. But you know how to handle a weapon correctly when you can use it for its intended purpose. So David got to the point where he could take the sword of Goliath and use it to defeat future enemies. See, now you have this understanding that although things may have been formed to hurt you, to harm you, to kill you, maybe you were wounded and something happened in life. Maybe you're wounded because of what someone did. Maybe you're wounded because of Satan's attack. And you don't even understand why it theologically happened to you and you haven't been able to process through it yet. I'm not making light of what you went through, but I'm telling you because you serve the God of peace who brings wholeness and completeness and restoration to the point you have nothing missing, nothing broken, and the peace that comes from being whole, you will get to a point where you can take the weapon that was meant to take you out and use it to bring victory for you and for others. Because thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph. Doesn't matter if you got through some situations before. Man, I barely made it through. I'm still limping. I'm still wounded. I'm still hurting. I still got this going on. Some of you may have went through stuff when you were kids and it's still over you. But you serve the God of peace who brings wholeness and completion and restoration until you have nothing missing and nothing broken. So if you're still limping, God's not done yet. If there's something still broken, God's not done yet. If there's something still wounded, God's not done yet. If there's something missing, God's not done yet. He's not done until you're completely restored, been paid back for what you've been through, and now you have victory over what was used to hurt you, to where you can be like Joseph and rename your pain. You can be like David and know how to handle the sword of your enemy. Because you begin to understand what Paul said, that God will cause all things 
the good, the bad, the ugly, the horrible, the bad things that Satan planned to hurt me, the things that wounded me, the things that wicked people did, the things that ignorant people did, the things that happened in life, all things, and work it for my good. So it doesn't matter what I went through. It doesn't matter what has happened to me. You don't have to make light of it. You just make big of your God who can turn it for your good. Then when it's all said and done, it's going to be good. When it's all said and done, you are going to be whole. When it's all said and done, you are going to be complete. When it's all said and done, you are going to be restored. When it's all said and done, you're going to have peace because you serve the God of peace who'll bring completion, wholeness, and restoration until you have nothing missing, nothing broken, and wholeness in every area of your life and the peace that comes from being whole because that's who he is. I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. Connect with us on social media. Our handle is at WeAreFaithATL. Follow us online at FCCGA.com. If you want to support the ministry financially, you can text FCCGA to 73256 or give online. But most importantly, we never want to close a broadcast without giving you the opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you never pray this prayer, repeat after me. and mean it from the bottom now. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I believe. Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised me from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you pray that prayer, we believe you've been born again. So if you pray that prayer, let us know by connecting with us online or emailing us at info at Once again, thanks for tuning in today. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have an amazing day.